look at root exudates. Like there's something that's become this, you know, liquid carbon pathway root exudates driving the entire soil microbiome, nutrient cycling, all that kind of stuff, and the impact of plant diversity and grazing management and all these different nutrition and all these different things on how that root exudates work and like it, it literally drives the the whole ship. And science discovered that it's not you go well you, you can you can observe it but you can't like the I kind of the way that I think about it is you know these like an observant farmer can make a whole lot of really powerful observations and connections between things that happen and it takes them to a certain insight in a certain place and then what science can do is amplify that understanding and observation to a whole new level which then further refines how you might farm based on that understanding. Hello and welcome along to the Quorum Sense podcast. I'm John O'Frew and I'm excited to be here with you as we dive into exploring how New Zealand farmers are creating more resilient, regenerative and enjoyable farming systems. All right, everybody, this morning I'm joined by Sam Lang. Sam, would you like to introduce yourself for the listeners, please? Yeah, cheers, Jono. Um, yeah, so I am farming here in Mid-Canterbury um, with my family, uh, my partner Sylvia uh, and my daughter Orla, who's just turned two. Yeah, we, uh, to sort of wind the clock back a bit, I'm a born and bred in Lower Hutt. Um, so uh, mum was a Hawke's Bay hill country farmer growing up. Um, Dad was a Petoni boy. Um, and he has spent his career in sort of uh, landscaping, paving, concreting and that. Um, so I sort of grew up with a dual life, you know, part um, lower heart and pretty hands-on, real practical family and that. And then um, on my mum's side, my grandparents, um, I was probably out of my 24 cousins on my mum's side, I was probably the closest to my grandparents and I just used to get, um, I don't know if I, if I volunteered myself or if I got shipped off every holidays and some years I'd spend a couple of months with my grandparents up there um over the course of the year and just and I just loved farming and I think I was always the rural kid of our family I got a sister and two brothers uh all younger and um all we're all very different and all get on great which is cool um but yeah so pretty we're lucky to live up in the bush in Lower Hutt um up, up in the hills there so got a little bit yeah kept it fairly wild and got to my parents were um, pretty pretty awesome to us. We had um, you know, the farm and then my great-grandma's place up at Mount Monganui and dad built a yacht which with a couple of mates which took him 13 years I think um, and launched when I was about 11 and we spent 10 years as family you know, in Wellington Harbour particularly down the Marlborough Sounds and you know, I just had this pretty amazing diverse childhood from that perspective but I don't think it really surprised anyone that I was sort of a definitely the farm kid of the family um went to Rathkill College in the Wairapa just mostly a rural boarding school um again I my recollection of that was it was part choice part not my choice <laughs> I mean I went uh you know big families and that and um strong opinions and stubbornness and things like that uh but a bit of distance really um it was one of the best things I did actually as a child going to go to school and then just I'd really struggled to fucking connect with primary school was okay but intermediate in lower hut you know I just got pretty sick of the the 
kind of urban drama, you might call it, which what, what I perceived as that, you know, going to malls and watching movies and all those kind of things just never really inspired me at all. So we got to, yeah, got to Rathgill and we'd spend our weekends out building huts in the bush and going down the river. And um, there was an amazing campus on that school. So, uh, yeah, went through there. Um, geography was the thing that really clicked with me at school. Um, I've always, it's been a real clear pattern for me, this relationship between land and people. Um, from a, I guess, like what I get curious about and interested in from a more heady, heady place has always been this, yeah, the relationship between land and people. And um, geography was sort of the, the, the approach I took to that. I loved it at school, um, had an awesome geography teacher and then took that through to uni in Dunedin um, and yeah, did that. So I've got a bit of a, I guess, like a biophysical environmental science um, background. And I just, the the more that I, as my uni years went through, I sort of moved that more and more into the kind of people space and that interface. So in my fourth year, I did a project looking at how hill country farmers were kind of interpreting and responding to the emissions trading scheme and what the opportunities were for that to actually um, get more trees on the land in a, in a positive way. Um, and yeah, that was probably my first proper insight into the disconnect between you know, policy and what's real on the ground. Um, probably something that stuck with me ever since. Um, after that, little OE, doing a bit of teaching in Europe and uh, things like that, which was cool, and came back landed a job um, after quite a few months of trying um, with the Environmental Protection Authority in Wellington, which was, I was sort of applying to a whole bunch of things and ended up working on big um, sort of government level consenting projects and stuff like the Tuki Tuki Plan Change 6 in Ruatanafa Dam, which was my main project while I was there. I think I lasted a bit over 18 months in government and uh, just got more and more uh, there's some amazing people and they're doing some doing some really cool stuff but the system just did not suit me um and the process we were running was you know i was working with all these people in hawks bay that i knew from a child and that i'd all these family and friend connections with and stuff like that that were either super for or super against or just had various views but the the process itself was really disempowering for pretty much everybody um and i just couldn't see how that was gonna deliver any kind of positive outcomes for Hawke's Bay um, and probably causing more harm than good. So I um, just decided to quit that. And I I knew that I wanted to get into the rural sector then, um, but because I was working on ag projects in government, I was a bit conflicted talking to um, potentially people I was working with from a government perspective about future jobs and whatever. So I just decided to quit that and jumped on a bike and went around the South Island for five or six weeks um, cycle touring, which was amazing. Um, and then as I was on there, my uncle who had taken over my granddad's farm when he passed away, um, he gave me a call and said, my shepherd's just left um, and we're heading into winter and do you want to come and um, you know, help us out over winter? So that was awesome. He's only nine years older than me. Um, we've been pretty good mates since um, yeah, for years. So that was basically like going and working for my mate and that was really, I knew the farm like the back of my hand because it was the one I'd spent so much time on as a kid. And um, yeah, that was really the the start of that. I did 
um, a year and a half there, uh, did the Calgary Leadership Program kind of as I started. I sort of had that already lined up and that was my, I didn't really know much about the farming sector, to be honest, like I'd always been on the periphery um, and just sort of kept in touch with what's going on through family and a bit of reading. So I felt pretty, pretty green. Um, the yeah, Kellogg Relationship course was just amazing for like a real quick, intense, deep dive into what the New Zealand primary sector kind of looks and feels like and what's going on. There's some really, really friends that I still have been really close to today in that. Um, and then they kind of, I guess, like pushed me to apply for a Nuffield scholarship. Um, and to be honest, I was, um, I kind of resisted that idea right to the day before applications. And then they gave me a call and said, we haven't got your application. I said, I'm not going to, because I've only been farming for like, it's like eight or nine months by that point. Um, but um, you know, they sort of twisted my arm and somehow managed to, managed to get through and that just uh, opened a huge can of worms which we can come back to later if you want um well the... no let's um let's let's take care of that now like what is for those that don't know what is a Nuffield scholarship what does that look like and entail yes yeah, so Nuffield is been around a long time I can't remember the the, the exact dates it kicked off in the UK is um, it anything to do with the Nuffield tractor I just have to ask this personally oh I should really know yes they're connected um, oh. I can't remember the exact relationship between the Nuffield tractor in the UK and, and how the Nuffield kind of foundation or whatever was formed over there. Um, but then, yeah, so I guess that happened in the UK from from memory. And um, hopefully now I don't get any calls from anyone in Nuffield saying I've misrepresented this, but, uh, you know, links to, you know, New Zealand's obvious links to the UK and stuff and Australia and, um, and Ireland and other European, European countries. Um, kind of, I guess, Nuffield expanded over the years. I think it's been going in New Zealand since the 60s or 70s. Um, and they used to just be one scholar a year, maybe two. Um, in the last sort of 10 years or so, it's been more like five. Um, and yeah, in New Zealand, it's funded by a mix of um, things like Dairy New Zealand, Beef and Lamb, um, FMG and Agmart, I think are the key like the major sponsors with a whole bunch of small ones. And it's really neat because some countries have like one sponsor for each scholar. And in the UK, that's kind of cool because you got, um, you know, they're old, you know, it's kind of like old money and they're not really too tied to what you do. And other countries have a lot of commercial kind of interest in, in who they're funding and stuff like that. So the cool thing about New Zealand is you just do whatever you want um, from a, you don't have a specific funder that you're trying to please so to speak you're just trying to do something that's for the benefit of the country so the yeah the intent of Nuffield I guess is um you know it's this incredible personal development you know eye-opening transformational experience um that is really based on like a global you know basically sending around the world to both just learn about the world and, and other people but also kind of have a bit of a focus on a study topic um and mine was my um the project i did in Kellogg's actually was looking at the future of hill country farming in hawks bay you know like uh yes with my geography hat on um i look at uh, many of our hill country landscapes and they just seem really vulnerable 
uh, from a climate perspective, from a um, market's volatility, you know, that all, all of these different factors I was putting in the same pot and saying it's um, something's going to have to give here. We need a, and it's not just a, it's not an incremental change thing. It's a system change thing um, for, you know, for, for these landscapes and communities to, to thrive and flourish long-term. And so, and that project kind of reaffirmed that for me, I guess. And so the question I took away for my Nuffield trip was, it was more about the social side of things rather than like how we farmed. It was like, what are the examples of farm system change around the world that have been like positively led? So there's obviously a sustainability element to that. Um, which is kind of a no-brainer, but where have people done positive farm system change and what's like, how did, what was the experience of those farmers? What support did they have? What were their kind of ingredients to success? Um, and my reference point that I want to avoid is like the subsidy reform in the 1980s, which we talk about positively in terms of the innovation and stuff. But when you dive into it, like the amount of pain and harm that that caused, um, you know, the shock crisis thing, yeah, you know, I can't imagine anyone that wants to go back to that kind of, and maybe we feel like we're living parts of that at the moment with some of the regulation and and, and pressures that are coming, pressures to change that are coming on. Um. So yeah, I took that question away. I really was. I wanted to mostly visit farmers. That was kind of my main focus: is find farmers that have um, that are, that are doing something different and kind of learn from their experiences, I guess, and. Um, I had this broad umbrella of some kind of sustainable farming transition um, and it was just in some cases just hunting out keywords in different countries and seeing what groups and people popped up and, and then sort of chasing them down and yeah it was pretty pretty incredible um, went through uh, the UK Europe um, and sort of North Central South America were the, were the key places that I was traveling on my own um, for about seven months and then in the middle of that we had a six-week what they call a global focus program where they you go with a group so i think i had five australians um an irishman a scotsman and um and me and we did indonesia uh singapore japan israel netherlands and then illinois all sort of a week each um incredible um experience and the contrast between some of those countries is just is just is amazing um but yeah i guess from a what i started to notice as i moved through country to country visiting and there were different labels that different farmers would put on what they were doing some were biologicals there was conservation agriculture agroecology organics um, regenerative ag kind of came up once i hit North America, and it was twenty. This is twenty sixteen, so it was kind of just emerging then. Um, and yeah, I guess I picked up a few things from that. One was that there were farmers that were in every country that I visited. There were farmers that were defying what I understood as what was like considered possible from a farming perspective. Like these incredibly healthy um, and productive farms that they were running, whether it was a veggie operation or a cropping farm or a, um, or a livestock farm with, you know, doing things either, you know, with little or no inputs and yet still being hugely productive or using different inputs um, and achieving things that were beyond what was possible um, 
or, or considered possible more conventionally I guess and that really I didn't know anything about really anything about biological farming or whatever I just you know I spent the last year and a half as a shepherd and all I knew was um bull beef and lamb finishing um although I always had an interest and so that was like an unintentional thing for me is I just got really inspired and curious about what was going on and, and when you hear the same observations and patterns and experiences in all these different languages and all these different countries you start tapping into okay there's something here about like soils plants animals and, and farming that's consistent um and yeah just really tapped into i guess my values and, and what, I, what i got excited about from a study perspective the the things that i noticed kind of some of my key takeaways were all the farmers that had been through this you know there were a lot of really hard stories um and as I got home, there was you know, some of the stories of organic farmers, for example, run really similar, like the the social pain of change um, by going out and doing something different. And, um, you know, New Zealand's sort of tall poppy thing and um, families getting into massive arguments or, you know, people in your communities just um, starting to ignore you, you know, usually only for a few years and then getting over it and uh, and getting all good again. But that was that was really consistent and the stories that farmers were telling weren't really so much about knowledge and information and, and all these kind of things they were more about the people that they had around them that had their back as they were going through these changes and they were changing for a whole lot of different reasons um but this concept of a support network just really struck me um and it's probably you know and still sticks with me today in terms of so it wasn't always like yeah neighbor or your farming community or even your family sometimes it was like the rugby team you know as <laughs> the rugby team were the people that were most interested in, in and every time you had your doubts and you shared it with your team they were the ones that you know had your back and gave you the encouragement to keep going and and, and push through so yeah and the other the other things were this sense of possibility was always present so there's always something that um some of those more well-known Regen pioneers talk about, you know, they have crisis moments. Gabe Brown's a classic um, that most that many people know, you know, three crop failures in a row and starting to learn, observe things. And that was, I definitely found examples of that. Um, probably found more where people got to a point and then they were just struck by the sense of what's possible through watching something, listening to something, or probably more commonly like visiting a farm or a farmer with all their biases and, and, and whatever's sitting in the background about why this person's nuts and what they're doing stupid and stuff like that and then something clicking and then seeing something possible that wasn't before, you know, that, um, yeah, so. Did you meet Gabe? No, no, I didn't get that. I got to Illinois, I didn't, yeah, South Dakota was going to be a bit of a detour, so um, I did. Um, I was kind of aware. I only really became aware of them as I got to North America, to be honest. And um, yeah, no, I didn't quite have time to organise that one. But, I'd love um, to know, Sam. Just um, before we do move on, you mentioned the term tall poppy syndrome, and you used it in the word like New Zealand, and it's something I'm definitely familiar with, and something that I still actually struggle with regularly. Is it a global thing? Or is it something that's really, you know, <laughs> originated in New Zealand? 
my, my experience was that the this the same kind of pattern is true in certainly in the western countries i probably didn't get the the places like ecuador and stuff like that i probably didn't connect in because of the language barriers and stuff i probably didn't get that same story so i probably couldn't speak for those cultures but the i think in it's consistent to varying degrees in western countries that i visited for sure um is new zealand the you know, where where are we on that spectrum? I, I'm not sure. We're probably we're up there. I think um, certainly the Americans seem to um, embrace that innovation and stuff a bit more, a bit differently. But they've still got the same. You know, they take the um, regenerative ranching crowd over there. There's still plenty of the, the conventional ranching crowd that think they're nuts and, um, and and still have that same issue in terms of you know if you're the only one in your community. Farming um, in that way, it, it's definitely um, early in the early days. It's definitely hard. Um, so, I guess my gut sense is that no, it's not certainly not unique to New Zealand. Um, what about Sam? This you speak of uh, some of your early inquiries was the relationship of people to the land. Did you notice any? Uh, you know, variations as you traveled the world, different communities with different relationships to their land or to the land that they farmed. And maybe not even a logistical group of like a, you know, as a, in location, but possibly any groups in particular where you noticed, whether it be age or background, where there was a noticeable shift or difference in the relationship people had to their environment. Yeah, I'm just trying to I get trying to bring up some of the, the, the stories that have really that really stuck with me and compare them as you're asking that question. And initially I was like, oh I feel like the, the people that had longer generational connections to land may have had a stronger kind of talk in a different way. But then this this Canadian couple that just, just came to mind who were sort of renting to buy this um that this cropping farm that I visited and you know, young couple two two young kids working their ass off and actually when I think about connection to land they were probably one of the strongest um you know in land that wasn't really you know might have been 10 percent theirs on the books by that you know at that point in time but they were just treating it like it was this really um like sacred is the word that comes to mind you know this, this sacred thing so yeah um i'm not sure that i mean interesting yeah in the, in the in the wider space of you know people that are farming and looking to kind of restore you know really actively restore and improve the health of, of their land as they farm i think we've had some of that's really um quite Uh, what do you call it business oriented or like they just see it as like this is about future of our family on this land resilient business resilient family um and the land needs to be the same in order to be that um and others you know right through to um actually that our primary focus is the you know the restoration and health of this land and we're going to do that through running a productive and profitable and healthy farming enterprise on top of it 
Um, yeah, oh, I mean that was one of the coolest things about the whole experience was the, the diversity of ways that people come to the same to similar places. With you know, it's like you know, I could I could you know how much I love whiteboards. Eh? I could fill I filled up a lot of whiteboards after I got home with with all of these different things and um, and the diversity of stories was was you know was full spectrum. Um, and that's what that's why I think the what I took away from that experience were these only kind of really these really high level things which was this inspiration around you know natural biological living farming systems and um these kind of two or three real high level observations about the human experience of 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 us so um yeah what an incredible perspective and it it's such a critical well, not critical, but influential time of your life. At, at So at what age did you return home, Sam? I'm 33 now, and I did it in 2016. How, how old was I then? <laughs> Nine <laughs> years ago. So, yeah, 23 maybe, 24, 24, 25. Um, and then maybe, yeah, wrap, wrapping it up at sort of 26. So, I mean, just I'm so grateful for that opportunity because I did it so early that it's completely shaped everything that I've ever done since at such an early age um in such an early stage in my farming career I actually almost wish that I'd spent more time um in like traditional farming systems in New Zealand because one of my like to this day having now farmed for sort of five or six years like sort of full-time equivalent um there's still a whole heap of basic traditional farming stuff that always that, that surprises me that things you know things are done certain ways and um and yeah because i i so quickly moved into a um into a different realm um and that i guess leads on to yeah when i got home it's one of these like um moments where you're like oh there's some kind of um connectedness going on in the world that we can't see but I got I think three days after I got home and I, I came home from the last place we're in was um Uruguay in Argentina and um got home for three days and I as I was going through North Central South America I just felt oh, I guess I was so inspired by what I was seeing I just really wanted to do it myself and I'd always had this I guess as a as a school kid and even at uni and that I always knew I wanted to go rural something I never knew what that would be and I never saw myself as a farmer like it was you know the like my mum's one of seven um I'm one of four I've got 24 cousins on just on that side um a few of them most of them are farmers too um but um you know getting on the land myself um wasn't something I actually thought about and even going shepherding and stuff until my uncle asked me it wasn't even something I'd really considered um but the experience of shepherding with my uncle and then just seeing and experiencing what did around the world I just really wanted to go home and do it um and that so that something flicked a switch on me to actually be a farmer not just be involved in farming um and that was a bit of a trick so I always thought I'd end up in some kind of I don't know, if, you, if I'd picked it, it would have been some kind of like farm environment advisory policy space, you know, playing to the, the strengths that I had at that time. Um, so yeah, and then three days after I got home, I just remember it 
vividly sitting at my parents' house on the Kapiti Coast, and um, I'd met Greg Hart from Mangarara and Hawke's Bay because my uncle knew that I was, when I was sitting up, when I got the nap out, he said, oh, I should probably go and visit Greg because um, he's doing some different stuff. Um, and so I did, and that was probably two years before I got home from Nuffield. And three days after I got back, I got this email from Greg. Somehow he'd dug up and found my, my name and email from two years ago, which was surprising in and of itself. And he, and he said, we're looking, for a, we're looking for a worker, and I'm just about to throw an advert out, and then you came to mind. So I just thought I'd flick an email and see what you're up to. And he had no idea where I was. He didn't, he, I guess he assumed I was still at Andy Barrett's or at Michael's place or I'd moved on somewhere else. And um, yeah, and it just like Greg was one of the, you know, regenerative grazing pioneers of New Zealand. And yeah, I think he's must be like getting close to 13, 14 years now um, since he started making changes inspired by some of the Americans and that. So I, I didn't trust myself to say no to that, to be honest. And it was, it was real exciting. And so that was two years there. Um, and yeah, Greg and I um, together learned to, like I learned a huge amount off him, and, and we learned a huge amount together. And the you know the evolution of the grazing philosophies and and stuff in New Zealand since that time, which would have been you know 2018, 2019. Yeah, it's just it's just changed and evolved so much even since then. Um, and, and and for Greg, and, and even after I left. Um, you know the, the changes since have been have been huge, which is you know part of what makes this space a bit challenging in some ways, like putting your finger on um, or, you know the, the lack of recipes and structure sometimes, um, but also obviously makes it pretty exciting um, at the same time. But one of the great things about working with Greg was he's so committed to not just his own learning and change, but you know. To, to the wider community and and that he just I think we hosted we hosted Darren Doherty at least twice like probably every two or three months there was some super interesting person coming through and 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 staying and we always had um people at the Eco Lodge and and it was just always people coming through and I was a single shepherd living in a shipping container and um you know I was actually only working 30 hours a week for him and filling in time with my own learning and and other things and um that opportunity just to meet so many amazing people that Greg had picked up over the previous 10 years and um, and connect was um, was really cool. Darren Doherty's definitely one of my definitely one of my favorites. Um, I think I've done at least three of his courses now. And uh, yeah, but the I suppose the after a couple of years um, was probably looking to kind of have that next growth opportunity um do something a bit different and i'd met my partner sylvia through a um a separate forum and she's a city girl from christchurch and uh the idea of um trying to convince her to move up to hawks bay <laughs> and uh the watts wasn't definitely wasn't on the cards at that time so we actually um yeah i, I chased her down to christchurch basically and um lived in town and we you know, we, we hit it off real quick and um, the the very quick question became well what's our life going to look like together um the, the farmer boy and the city girl and yeah so we traveled for uh, nine months i think it was all up and mostly in a caravan 
around the country and visiting friends, but also staying with all these different farmers around the country that would I've sort of met or developed um, kind of through the regen networks at the time. And it was, the, you know, the question really for us and for Silver in particular was, you know, um, can you see yourself as a farmer? Um, and you know, and living in a farming community and, and, and doing this thing, and is that what we can have for our life? I think, to be honest, that when we got to the end of that, and Sylv's uh, sort of tedious answer was, I think so. <laughs> so we drew a, but she's got all her family friends in Christchurch, so we basically drew a circle an hour around Christchurch and said, right, we've got a farm within an hour of Christchurch, so we can stay connected to those family and friends. And then and I put a filter on that, which said the farm's got to have hills on it. And um, there's not many hills between uh within an hour of Christchurch. Um and we tried really hard finding a place on the peninsula um without success. And then yeah we just we actually got um through friends of friends and that um this opportunity came out up here in we just south of Sheffield, um kind of right the first foothills that you hit as you head towards Arthur's Pass. And um yeah and they the, the family here were really keen to um have the land managed in a I guess more natural way um and this is an old multi-generational farm from from way back and um it's a big family and um but none of them are none of them want to farm it so um they're really keen to have it looked after and that was the invitation to us that was two years ago now um and so we ended up it's um 450 hectares here and the farm manager at the time for the previous lessee um was a guy who's our age and he'd actually been running this block and a couple down the road for six or seven years by that point. Um, and basically this farm was too big for us to run ourselves. I'd been looking for like 100, 150 hectares to play with, you know, kind of as a part-time thing was what I was really looking for. Um, and so we're like, oh no, we can't, we can't take on something this big. And uh, they said, well, have a chat to, um, have a chat to Tig and, um, maybe you guys could do something together and long story short we we managed to make that happen so we set up a company in 50 50 between um him and i and we brought in the two other blocks um which are a natural fit because they're flat and free draining versus our kind of heavier hills here and um yeah so somehow we ended up leasing 600 hectares um with uh pretty limited capital um to start off with and, and certainly no equity uh and yeah tig's pretty into uh natural farming as he calls it and you know really open-minded and curious and he runs the show he's the full-time farm manager and i'm part-time farmer part-time quorum sense um and yeah we're just what three quarters of the way through our second season and um you talk about learning experiences it's uh <laughs> It's been full on. What sort of um, you know, enterprises do you have on farm, Sam? Uh yeah, well the the, the beauty of Canterbury is I come to appreciate it more and more as you can pretty much do anything. Um I guess we took over what was almost yeah, predominantly a dairy support block. Um you're raising dairy heifers and we've kept that going um for the most part. So we've got around about eight hundred uh, dairy heifers May to May. Um, this year we've got, uh, I should say we've got 100 hectares of irrigated land out of that 600. Um, the, so we've got 120 hectares in crop. 
about 35 of that's on the hill and the rest is all um, on the flats, mostly irrigated except for some seed peas. And we've been trading in, in lamb ewes in winter um, and finishing everything and, and sort of clearing the farmer's sheep by, by Christmas, um, which worked really well the first year, not so well this year because the sheep market's crashed. But um, I guess our general, you know, thinking about what this farm looks like from a kind of regenerative farm system for, or whatever kind of it's been an interesting experience for me in terms of idealism versus realism versus risk um and also thinking about um people and you know if, if i replicated myself three times and was running this place would be doing a whole lot of silly stuff and probably working too hard um one of the neat things about being in partnership is um we've put some real boundaries around family and making sure that like what we do from a farming business perspective doesn't come at the cost of our family. So um, that's been, you know, I probably resisted that a little bit because I was um, becoming a family man, something that has taken me a while, of, uh, a bit of getting used to having had so much freedom um, to do whatever I wanted um, in my life beforehand. But um, yeah, so I almost universally knock off at five um, and we try and work only every third weekend. Um, and um, yeah, but the coming back to where I was trying to go there, um, I guess some of the goals for this place were to try and develop a system that had the flexibility from a kind of stock and cropping policies perspective to not get, um, yeah, I think some of the most damage that we do to farms in this country is when we get, get into droughts. Um, or I thought that was at the time that was what I was most concerned about this kind of fear of bad droughts and having to spend tens of thousands of dollars feeding stock that we were committed to to keep going and also decking the farm in the process um, so we pulled back the dairy heifers brought in more sheep so that we had that flexibility there and then also brought in um, a little bit more cropping so that we could and that's cereals and peas cereals and peas mostly um, so that we can you know utilize that spring growth uh, in that way and then still have um, a bit of area to spread out over winter um, and, and spread things out that way. Um, so that's actually working quite well. Um, one of the downsides or one of the kind of limitations from a grazing management perspective is with dairy heifers, well, we've got four different clients um, and we, at worst in our first summer, we ended up with 13 mobs um, and this year we're down to well, yeah, once the calves, some of extra calves turned up in December, we were still nine or ten. Um, and that really limits you uh, from, from a labour perspective, trying to shift that many mobs, even even once a day, to be honest, is um, just has this huge labour drain. So it's one of my um, ongoing frustrations, I guess, is, or not frustrations, but just realities of um, we really like to put a bring a capital U flock into the system, um, both for the land's benefit um, and on paper, uh, it, it, it stacks um, in terms of the flexibility of feed demand and stuff like that, but also the opportunity to put, you know, some beef finishes with a big with a big sheep flock and stuff and, and, and at least have one big mob moving around the farm doing some good work um, while also keeping some dairy heifers in, um, and other ones. 
And you know what else I suppose? Yeah, I mean, being a, yeah, it's just occasionally I find myself dreaming about what it would be like to, you know, go and manage a farm where, yeah, that was, that was debt free and, you know, the owner's got capital and you can go and just, you know, buy the stock you want, like design the stocking policies you want to, to suit the kind of management you want to do. Whereas we're a little bit more tied to, um, at the moment, to, if these are the stock policies that we want to take on either from a cash flow perspective or um, from a risk perspective, for example, and then we have to adapt our management to suit that. So we're a little bit, as a result, um, we're putting a bit of, um, it was really interesting listening to Jake Heron's podcast last week, you know, and, and, and his, you know, no one puts all management and I just love that. And I've, I've seen um, like one of my mentors, Dean Martin up in Hawke's Bay, you know, I've seen that work. I've seen what you can achieve with that, um, but it takes that real solid focus on grazing management to, to, um, to make system. You might have other, you know, you, you'll have uh, an even more diverse range of experiences than I will now. Um, but, um, but I'm spending a little bit more on inputs to compensate for the fact that we aren't grazing in a way that I think is going to really kick that kind of soil ecosystem into gear um and that's just one of the cut that's kind of just one of the realities and compromises we're making at the moment um and we've got a um, we've got one block in a trial just trying to compare the impact of those inputs versus not um just so we've got something to monitor uh what you you said three things earlier sam when you were talking about creating your policies it was balancing risk i think i heard you know definitely lifestyle and and family perhaps it was economics as well but yeah mm. it's like the early days, it's 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 fantastic to be able to have cash flow without too much capital outlay, and what you're doing seems an obvious choice to do that. It sounds like one of the most important things is you found yourself an incredible partner, um, you know, to run the business with. It's aligned with values and similar stage in life. You know, think about how it could be if you didn't have that. You know that relationship it's just it's huge and so just massive uh you know ups to to you guys for making that work and i can really hear the the communication level is is such that everything's on the table all the time and obviously that's working yeah i mean the when we when we came into this we were really explicit like the biggest risk to this business is that he and i don't get along like our relationship is the most um is the is the most risky thing that we're doing is is going into business with someone that we don't really you know we don't really know um but we'd heard great things about him from lots of people and um i don't think he knew much about us but he took a he took a bump um but yeah and i mean the just even bigger but i mean what you're talking about there is like context right so mm-hmm. our context is he's really big on on family time and putting some real strict lines on that and sylvia to be fair is the one that um has has really enforced that from it from our end because it wasn't my natural instinct but i really appreciate it and now especially not all as my daughter's two now so i just love that like five o'clock knockoff daughter time um and now she comes farming with me in the weekends and, and and sometimes during the week and that's just um yeah i never really understood or foresaw how much kind of joy that would come from from that experience of um but yeah, context. So there's 
there's family life and boundaries there. There's there's our kind of capital realities and, and cash realities, and then there's kind of that like risk reward kind of kind of balance. And um, you know, if there's one thing I'd I'd change if I could, it would be trying to get that capital U plot into this farm system. I think would from a soil plant farm system perspective would really sort of next level what we're up to you know i don't call what we're doing here um i don't i don't call us a regenerative farm or myself a regenerative you know we're, we're kind of um we're like in our cropping program we've brought in some what you call it biological farming sort of techniques inputs etc um some of them substitution some of them in addition some of them taking other things out um and that's a as i learned to be a cropping farmer uh, i'll probably get more and more um confident to to, to to do more in that space but it's it doesn't look that different to what everyone else around here is doing um and that's kind of true for pretty much everything that we do except for maybe our winter feed where um i'm pretty i'm pretty committed to the diverse winter crops uh and this year um or well, a little bit last year and this year a bit of bell grazing as well um so yeah the as much as i would love to go um, you know, do a Jake Heron or a Hamish Bielski or a, you know, and, and, and go for that. That just doesn't fit our context at the moment. Um, and so we're just, we're just slow and steady, but um, yeah. Which well, is perfect for where you're at. Like this is, you know, really hearing the weight that this conversation has, like context is key. What you're doing is exactly, you know, suited and correlates your context I, I think it's it's just often overlooked we put ourselves in these categories like oh I, you know the worst thing we do is start to compare you know <laughs> like you, you diving in and out of your oh, Jake Herod and Hamish Belsky but one thing I can hear underneath all of this that's really powerful is the trust you guys have for each other you haven't mentioned but I can hear it is like You've both got room to play. This is you and your farming partner. Is it Tig? Yep. Did you say Tig? Yep. Yeah, you, you give it. I mean, you you respected his choice to, you know, really, you know, whether it was five o'clock knockoff, said like that, or or family um priority. It's like um, you know, and he and he trusts you with you know, something I'm not keen to move on is like this diverse winter thing. It's like, you know, and would that have been quite new to him? Oh, 100%. Yeah. I mean, huge amounts of trust from him and our, yeah, that, that, that winter cropping stuff and our fert policies and, and pasture renewals and all that kind of stuff. He's, um, you know, like curious about what, you know, like what the underlying stuff is and gets excited about kind of like the theory of it, I guess. Um, and some of, you know, and some of the stuff we saw last year. Um, like I, to be fair, I had a couple of like, rookie farming failures um, like mine there was only oh was it 12 hectares or well, eight of 12 hectares of the diverse winter feed that i sowed last year was like just lacked basic farming sense because i was just too busy didn't think about it and lacked experience um and you know so this diverse winter feed mix into a second year kale paddock with no fur and it was pugged compacted and we then we had heaps of rain so what happened 
all the grass and all the herbs and stuff took off and my kale was like hiding underneath and then um yeah and then we got dry and the whole thing kind of like went sulky and i was just left with this oh yeah it sucked i was like right this should be eight nine tons based on when we sowed it you know and all that kind of stuff and i think the worst part of the paddock might have been three to five you know and um but yeah he didn't uh, you know no comments no criticism no it's just like yeah he said yeah, realities of farming. This is a funny thing. It's like one regenerative crop fails or, or whatever, and it's like, oh no, that's that's because it was a regen crop. That's why it failed. It's like, no, nah, no, nah. conventional kale crops fail all the time. Like I've seen heaps reselling around here, and um, and it's just, it's actually, you know, this most of what we still do, regardless of the philosophy, still are like it's just basic farm management and decision making, um, as opposed to yeah, you and know, in, in, in my opinion anyway. Um, but the cool thing about those paddocks is that. We had a bit of annual grass and um, clovers and um, acelia and stuff like that in there. And the amount of feed we got off that those paddocks this spring, like we had birds eating out heaps of seed before the crop was eaten, and then we had pigeons in there afterwards. And I was like, oh, there's going to be nothing left. And it was we had such a wet winter; it was so muddy. Um, thankfully, they were free draining soils, so we didn't pug too much. But it was it got beaten up for the second year in a row, and. Um, man what came back was just incredible um just this incredible sword of basilia vetch annual ryegrass which is probably the most component in some of the annual clovers and that and we, it probably grew twice the feed that our ryegrass pasture ryegrass white clover pastures grew um through spring and we had the stock to utilize it so you know we, we might have missed out on a few ton um for the winter feed but we probably made up a couple of ton in spring as a result so um you know that was that was nice to see if the and, question um, you know was it really a failure <laughs> i'll be at the time it was real in the winter or oh, yeah, that, I mean, that, the that, autumn. That, that, like getting your winter feed wrongs it's it's pretty costly especially the last two winters have been had like the locals here you know they're like you know two of the wettest years in 40 years they're like you know that it's completely it's it's getting all the locals are um you know, significantly rethinking their whole wintering and stocking policies after the last two winters. They're like, you know, we, um, you know, silage wagons getting stuck every week kind of thing. And um, oh, that's in the hill country on the flats. It's probably not so bad. But um, yeah, the, where was I going with that? Um, Failure v learning. Yeah. I mean, look, nice to, like, it didn't, uh, we did it in a small area. It hurt, but it didn't hurt that much because eight hectares and a 600 is not a, you know, it's not hugely significant. And it wasn't like a fodder beat crop. We were trying to get 30 tons and we got five, which would have, you know, hurt a lot more. So the, to be fair, learning that in the first year um, is going to, I'm never going to make those same mistakes um, again because, um, you know, the great thing about being in a partnership is the accountability. Even if it's not being held accountable, it's feeling accountable, if that makes sense. Um, and yeah, so that, uh, I don't know if it gives me extra, um, probably does give me that little bit of extra drive motivation to just like, to plan just that little bit further than I otherwise would, you know. And part of that's, 
also about having to coordinate with someone else also means doing things in advance and being able to articulate and explain and, and, and fit things into the bigger picture. Um, and while that sometimes feels like more work, I think the, you know, the farm and the business and stuff is all better off because of it. But um, yeah. What I can hear is this beautiful sort of dance between, you know, two people uh, who complement each other and really, you know, symbiotic ways where it's like you've got this incredible background and experience of, you know, different ways of doing things and ideas and information. And then, you know, Tig's got this this sort of a lot more physical, practical experience and like far out, man, what a combo. And we could go on all day about, about you know, how, how this sort of relationship is shaping the farms and the farm and its outcomes. Um, but at this point, I want to steer towards your, if, if you're farming sort of part-time, what is it that you're doing with the rest of your time um, at this stage in your life? Yeah, yeah. Um, well, it's funny you segued there because I was going to make the same connection between you know, being a, being an ideas person um, more than a really experienced doer um which is true for the farm and also true for quorum sense you know uh, and that so yeah and the what i do now for quorum sense is it has significantly reduced in scope which has been a good thing um which is we've got this growing sort of knowledge hub or regen toolbox as we're calling it now which is trying to bring together some of these collective farmers experiences and learnings and knowledge and and having it as a place that's um accessible sort of on demand i guess as opposed to um to, to kind of complement the field days webinars podcasts and things like that which are you kind of pick up in the moment and then i, I guess that the gap that that's trying to fill is you know when you sit down to, to plan or, or actually implement something having something to go to um that has that little bit of extra detail that um that you might be looking for um and also to try and bring together some of those different examples you know we're talking about diversity before in context and you know one of the things that excites me about this and you know which is true for our case studies and podcasts and, and, and webinars and things that we do is um, is showcasing diversity, diversity of context, and therefore diversity of management and farm system and all these kind of things. And I think it's really cool to be able to put a whole lot of different examples of what winter cropping or wintering might look like in different parts of the country from a coming from a regenerative mindset, but all you know, put them all in the same place and, on, and as a space for farmers to like explore um, and, and connect with different parts of different parts of that. So yeah, those are kind of the um purposes of the regen toolbox we'll call it um so there's that there's i guess we're looking at growing our work in the sort of science and research or i'm really curious about us articulating you know because there's there's the science there's scientific method and this kind of idea of a robust inquiry and that versus like the science funding system and 
and how some science is conducted and and, that. and it's really interesting being in quorum central right because in, in in some cases a lot of the the kind of inspiration and possi- possibility and excitement some of that comes out of out of the science system and what some of these incredible scientists are learning and exploring about how plants and microbes and animals and, and all this kind of stuff interacts and at the same time there's a whole bunch of science that's being done which just lives in this you know that reductionist um isolate a variable and make a statement out of context of the rest of you know whether it's out of a farmer's context or you know or anything and um and it just doesn't sit well um it feels kind of mechanical or um you know it doesn't sit with sort of broader living systems worldview so uh yeah that i guess this the science stuff that i'm effectively leading for quorum sense now is really looking at like okay how can we use this like um these incredibly work with these incredibly knowledgeable and skillful people in this in this kind of broader field of science and robust inquiry and stuff like that and also merge that in a really powerful way with farmers observation and experience and inquiry and and innovation um so i think we're only just getting started on that you know what that can look like um and i just yeah just spent a couple of days up in palmy on a different project with you know a bunch of some of the conversations that are happening there and some of the ones i've been having with farmers are um you know there's so many possibilities in this space and i think the it's a bit of a different one but there is you know the farmers and quorum are seeing things on farms that don't line up with what you know the relevant farm model says should be happening and in many cases that's got a whole lot of positive outcomes for the farmer or the milk company or um the consumer or society that aren't currently being recognized um and you know if we're gonna considering how much of an influence policy and regulation and 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 even like market drivers and stuff are having on and how we farm there's probably a, an important role for us there somewhere in helping bring to light where those different possibilities exist and, and, and what that actually means and then yeah to finish that off i guess you know quorum sense is pretty cool in the sense that we've got our responsibilities but also we're we're, we're a team and kind of dive in and, and help in all these different sorts of places and that so um it sounds like we're almost creating the possibility of rather than looking at the items of inquiry we're demonstrating a way in which the shaping of the questions and the methodology of the way that we carry out the inquiry in a way that can possibly alter how science can be done to capture the whole or to allow for complexity you know as we start to discuss this right now live in the flesh like i'm all of a sudden and i never thought i'd say this but like i'm excited about science and <laughs> sam i can see you like because <laughs> i'm always the <laughs> if you're a fly on the wall in our team meetings i'm always the one <laughs> questioning the science but yeah how brilliant because how how many people out there do rely on that? Like you said, they get inspired by it. They can see how things work for the first time because of these scientific questions. Look at root exudates. Like there's something that's become this, you know, liquid carbon pathway root exudates driving the entire soil microbiome, nutrient cycling, all that kind of stuff, and the impact of plant diversity and grazing management and all these stuff and nutrition and all these different things on how that root exudates work. And like it, it literally drives the the whole ship. 
and science discover that it's not you go well you, you can you can observe it but you can't like the i kind of the way that i think about it is you know these like an observant farmer can make a whole lot of really powerful observations and connections between things that happen and it takes them to a certain insight in a certain place and then what science can do is amplify that understanding and observation to a whole new level which then further refines how you might farm based on that understanding um as opposed to um like science discovering something that no one else has observed which i in a farming context i don't really i feel like is less relevant and so and yeah and then there's you know what we talk about like once you get into the you know food health nutrition markets consumers policy regulation space then um you know the the data robustness i guess that comes with taking a using the scientific method method to assess things creates the legitimacy for something that can then translate at that level as well um which is just you know that's how we it's how our society works um but um i mean the yeah the the most that you know most of the scientists that i've worked with in the last few years you know are very aware um and almost feel like they're products of the the science system in the sense that they don't really get to work with farmers you know like the whole the whole way the processes are all set up is you know like they're putting a huge amount of time into applying applying for money that they never get, that they often don't get and then they're kind of bureaucracies that they work within effectively mean that the overheads and the time and having to be on the clock and all that kind of stuff mean that you know very few of them uh, either get the opportunity or have the ability to create the space to have those the real rich interactions with farmers for example if that's their field um, and I feel like that's a space that we can play in and I'm seeing those possibilities um, where we can bring those knowledge systems together and those experiences and and but also drive the questions from a farmer's perspective rather than from the science funding system's perspective um as, as you were talking about so um yeah but the i, yeah, I almost there's a there's a thing called oh, probably different names for it i'm a bit out of the game like action research for example um maybe a little bit of a clunky term but the idea of like it's actually kind of this thing about in our context farmers learning and trialing and innovating things um for the benefit of their farms with, with a kind of science input into that but also kind of taking those learnings and then and then doing their job elsewhere with you know with the implications of that and letting farmers focus on the um the innovation side of things and not get so worried about the the kind of real hard science um yeah so i was sort of seeing that as something that could be yeah quite a powerful relationship potentially um but yeah early days oh wow <laughs> and you're 33 years old sam yeah, what a pleasure it is to work alongside you. Um, we've been how long we've we been working together for now, Sam? Been oh. shit since two thousand eighteen. Yeah, be five coming up five years. 
you were you were sort of right there at the start of the formation of the of the quorum sense project which is almost in its um what it, it's yeah coming up to three years and you know you were definitely working a lot behind the scenes before that so yeah just acknowledge the heck out of you for your contributions to uh i was going to say new zealand agriculture but really it's it's the global agricultural model you've had an impact all over the world mate and it's incredible now you're you know getting the, the family joy of life brought to the table and you're getting your hands dirty and practical and you're doing all this work on yourself it's just watching you grow mate has been an incredible experience for me personally so i just want to really honor you for uh, who you're being is is massive i'll throw that back at you because watching your changing growth over the last five years has been huge as well and um inspiring at times and um frustrating at others <laughs> From being the most disruptive board yeah. member of Quorum Sense to being the most disruptive team member. I'm really glad I'm not <laughs> your manager anymore, mate. <laughs> yeah, I didn't uh, I didn't envy you there. Oh, I was just, just going like, to say, like, the one thing it didn't cover, like, the last two and a half years have been, like, also, like, probably the most challenging of my life. Well, definitely the most challenging of my life. Like, probably, I've, I've definitely hit my, definitely hit my biggest low points. Um, as well as some of the biggest high points at the same time. Um, and that which was a stimulus for doing a whole, you know, it's kind of like that failure drives, you know, some kind of recreation of something and, and, and takes you to a better place, which is definitely like taken on quorum sense and the lease and having a first child all at the same time was pretty stupid in hindsight, to be honest. Um, but um, not that I'd change it now. What a ride, what a roller coaster we've all hit a few walls in this journey for sure. I know I have thing is, is we're still here, you know, and we're still all committed to the same incredible group of, you know, the most incredible community of people. And beyond that, you know, the function and health of our landscapes. And so all of the baggage, all of the stuff that we've bought in and cleared out and bought back in and cleared back out. Like it's been, but like what Hamish said in his podcast recently, you know, those those learnings are they're necessary. Whilst we're not going to make them wrong, we will acknowledge them. So I definitely get that. And I've witnessed those low moments and and witnessed you hanging on and witnessed you doing what you needed to do to get through that. So that was for those listening, that was, you know, Sam really was responsible for the creation of this project that is responsible for bringing you this podcast just to give you some of the, you know, magnitude of what we're talking about here. And um, and now, you know, he's been able to hand that over to the management of the project to our wonderful Chloe. And that's enabled Sam to further apply himself and develop himself. And you're still, I mean, you, what, you're still doing stuff with beef and lamb, Sam, and and, and land care research. You, like, you've got a lot going on. Oh, just, yeah, beef and lamb stuff's pretty, pretty small and not so much with, Thank you recently, but that was yeah, that work. That was actually the probably the fourth thing in the Quorum Sense Farm baby, and then that uh, regenerative think piece that Gwen and I were leading, uh, all all coming together in the same summer. Um, no, I think definitely like it was actually a, it was a conversation I was having with Dylan Ditchfield yesterday, um, just on one of our sort of regular catch ups, and and he sort of talked about how he's, you know, we go through these highs and these lows, like every high has got a, every big high is going to have a big low and big lows can have a big high and whether they're short ones or long ones or whatever. And this is concept of 
kind of leveling out a little bit and not taking those away, but just just um, and hopefully leveling out at the high end of the highs as opposed to the, you know, but, um, you know, that really kind of resonated with where I'm at now versus the last couple of years. And, um, you know, and it's, and, you know, I get out of bed every day now, you know, pumped, um, you know, as opposed to every second. Um, which is, you know, maybe not quite as pumped. Um, yeah, that kind of taking out that some of that noise and and stuff like that is um, just yeah, things are less stressful, more enjoyable, and you sort of take things as it comes, and it's um, and and also letting go of like yeah, letting go of fear of failure has actually been something for me as well the last couple of years um, for sure as much as we talked about that before and um, yeah that's pretty liberating Sam final question what would you say to someone just starting their journey into uh, whatever you want to call it regenerative biological more natural ways of farming um, I think coming right back to, to close to where we started well, this is is that sort of support network and connection um, to a community or group of people that are that that are doing the same thing, and and starting with developing some relationships with with people you can trust and lean on and um, and bounce off um, is gonna is going to make the whole process a whole heap more enjoyable and um you know you're going to get more you're going to get more out of it um the other thing um and i know there's you know people have different opinions on this but i really like the concept of understanding your kind of comfort levels for things um and from a business perspective like your your appetite for risk basically um and making your changes or, or, you know, in my context, running trials that are safe to fail, you know, that, that if they fail, like our winter cropping area, like it kind of sucked and it hurt a little bit, but it didn't hurt heaps. And I learned a heap and we can, can do it better next year. Um, rather than changing everything all at once, if you're potentially in a position where if that doesn't work, you're going to be a bit vulnerable. Um, so it's like, you know, this landscape's been around for millions of years and, um, <laughs> You know, and we've been farming it for hundreds of years, and one or two more years um, isn't gonna, you know, make or break things, and um, and it's nature, and things will, yeah, things can happen really quickly, or some things will take time. So, yeah, that's my two cents. Awesome, Sam. Hey, look, thanks so much. I know you've got a lot on your schedule. Thanks for taking the time, Sam, to share with the community. Thank you. Cheers, Jono. Great to chat, mate. This podcast was supported by MPI's Productive and Sustainable Land Use Extension Services Fund. The information, opinions and ideas presented in this podcast are for informational purposes only and do not constitute professional advice. Any reliance on the content provided is done at your own risk. Thank you for listening. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Quorum Sense podcast. Subscribe, share, and if you have any comments, questions or topics you'd like us to cover, please email us at podcast at quorumsense.org.nz
thecorumsense.org.nz or visit thecorumsense.org.nz website where you can also access past episodes. We hope you have an enjoyable week and that you've got something of real value from this podcast. Be sure to join us for the next exciting episode. We'll see you then.